welcome to you. How's everybody? Good. You enjoying a little bit cooler weather these days? It's very nice. We're going to continue our trek through the book of Luke this morning uh, in our series for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. We are still making our way through the seek component of that three-part series as we come to Luke 12, 1 through 7. It's always important to consider the context of every passage that we look into. And so I'll direct our attention to the screen where you will see an interaction that Jesus had with one of the religious leaders with whom he was dining just prior to the episode we're looking into this morning. Read with me, please, Luke eleven thirty-seven to 40. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him, so he went in and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness, you fools. Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? Jesus is addressing the reality of hypocrisy in the lives of the Pharisees who cared deeply about their outward appearance of legal obedience, but gave no regard to the fallen condition of their hearts. And so as we look to this passage this morning, uh, this brief glimpse gives us uh, kind of a context, provides a backdrop into understanding kind of from where Jesus is coming. So with that, let's read Luke 12, 1 through 7. In the meantime, when so many thousands of the people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples first, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we um, come to you from all different places, and so we just pause to quiet ourselves. Lord, before we dig into the text, I do want to pray for uh, Kelly and Joe Wilmot. I believe as Kelly has gone into labor, Lord, that your hand would be on that. And also, on the other side of the spectrum, that you would be with the Svoboda family as they mourn the loss of Mike. Lord, we thank you for your grace, that it provides a place for us to to hope and to grieve. And so, Lord, as we come to this text this morning, this very heavy text, Lord, we ask your grace as we wrestle with our own hypocrisy, with our misplaced fears. Lord, we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would convict us. Uh, Lord, that as we make our way to the table, Lord, we would then be able to rejoice all the more in recognizing what you have done for us. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. About five years ago, in June of 2005, uh, an internet-based virtual world was launched called Second Life. Now, most of us are familiar with online chat rooms, interactive blogs, or even video conferencing through Skype or other internet-based communication software. 
Maybe some of you have even gotten into playing games online in which you compete with players in real time who perhaps live in other parts of the country or even the world. The internet has indeed forged a new horizon regarding what is possible, but the virtual world of Second Life has pushed the boundary even farther. Men and women who desire to become part of this essentially online civilization create what are known as avatars. An avatar is the human user's computer representation of himself or herself in the form of a three-dimensional animated model that that person can create and manipulate. These avatars, called residents in Second Life, enjoy an advanced level of social networking that enables users to explore, meet, and socialize with other residents, uh, participate in activities, even engage in actual commerce. Uh, To travel within this virtual world known as the grid, avatars can walk, run, jump, drive a car, uh, even fly unassisted. You can actually purchase real estate, virtual property with real hard-earned money. You can also get an education. Reputable institutions such as Harvard, Stanford, and Rice University are just some of the schools that are utilizing this virtual world for academics. What's more, countries from around the globe are beginning to create virtual embassies on privately owned islands online. You can even go to church in Second Life. Life Church out of Edmond, Oklahoma, has purchased its own plot of virtual land called Experience Island and has developed 12 online campuses where people can worship virtually. The Anglican Church has built a cathedral in Second Life. There's an Islamic temple where Muslim residents can worship. To date, over 4 million people have created essentially an alternate existence for themselves in Second Life. The word avatar predates the onset of online virtual worlds and actually refers to a divine incarnation or embodiment, a Hindu word. And its usage for applications like Second Life is fitting because, in effect, an entire society of people have become godlike creators, fashioning little incarnations of themselves, often removing what they don't like about their lives, and adding characteristics and elements that will allow them in this alternate world freedoms and opportunities otherwise not available to them in real life. But before we judge, before we marvel with kind of odd fascination at the peculiar notion of carrying on pretenses in a virtual world, we must, I believe, come to grips with our own charades. We are hypocrites one and all. Ultimately, none of us is who we present ourselves to be. It's a tale as old as time itself, the plague of self-interest. Since the human race began, our impulse is to try to hide our misdeeds, our shameful acts. We cover up the bad and we show off the good. In our society, strength is celebrated and praised and weakness is criticized and frowned upon. And so it's almost unnatural for anyone to be vulnerable in front of someone else, at least not publicly. And so whether it's motivated by an appetite for power or fear of failure or simply pride, our desire to be liked and accepted, our hunger for success, our longing for acceptance and approval often goads 
against our duty to be honest and sincere people. And if your inner struggle is anything like mine, oftentimes self-interest and sincerity do battle. My desire for people to like me and think I've got it all together is in conflict with my sense of responsibility to be truthful about who I am and how I'm doing. Self-interest often competes with sincerity. Not only do we not always represent ourselves accurately, but sometimes we're downright hypocritical. It's not difficult for us to be critical in others, that which we have a propensity toward in ourselves. And at the root of hypocrisy is, again, self-interest, self-promotion, self-protection, basic self-centeredness. But don't fall into the trap of thinking that our hypocrisy has to necessarily be some glaring moral discrepancy in order for it to be legitimate. Quite the contrary. More often than not, the hypocrisy that we exhibit in our lives is very subtle, sometimes downright unnoticeable. A friend says to you that he's having a really difficult time at work, or maybe his marriage is in shambles, and you compassionately respond, I'll be praying for you, which you never do. You feign Christian concern, but in reality, you don't care much for anyone else's problems. I can't tell you how often I have done that. Maybe you really struggle with someone's personality at work, or maybe even in your community group, and a rift has resulted in your relationship, but neither of you actually care enough to address it, and so it festers, maybe for years. The gospel calls you to restore the relationship, but neither of you care enough to walk the sometimes difficult path of reconciliation. Sometimes our hypocrisy exists as we passively sit by and allow others to believe things about us that just simply aren't true. You know, perhaps because I'm an ordained minister in the Evangelical Presbyterian Church, you you think I'm some kind of a spiritual giant. I know the Bible through and through. I'm a theological wizard able to cite ancient creeds and, you know, bring Scripture to mind on a whim. I couldn't be farther from the truth. Academically, I did well at seminary, but there's a big difference between simply regurgitating information for tests and deep abiding retention of the truth. Chances are, if you asked me a question about theology, I'd be able to give you the beginning of a good answer, but not a complete one. I'd know where to look to find the rest of the answer but chances are you probably wouldn't be too too satisfied with what I was able to offer you in the moment. If you read a scripture to me, I might be able to tell you what book it's from, but I would have a difficult time identifying chapter and verse. I've never been very good at uh, what's considered devotionals, Bible reading and prayer. I'm a picture of inconsistency. And over the course of my Christian life, I have known far more deserts spiritually speaking, than lush gardens. It's actually a pretty constant battle and frustration of mine. But most of you have probably thought that, for the most part, I have it all together, and I have been content to allow you to go on believing that. And that's hypocrisy, plain and simple. 
The problem with keeping pretenses, with hypocrisy, is that none of us for any considerable period of time can wear one face in private and another in public without eventually getting bewildered as to which is true. Living a lie or living hypocritically alienates us from God. It alienates us from each other. And ultimately, it alienates us from ourselves. Mark Twain once quipped that we're all like the moon. There's a dark side we don't want anyone to see. It's like we maintain two kinds of morality side by side. One that we practice but rarely preach, and the other that we preach but rarely practice. After all, it's a lot easier to fight for one's principles than it is to live up to them. And so we create our own avatar, so to speak. Because none of us is perfect, we all fall short in a multiplicity of ways. In the Bible, God has given us a standard to which none of us can aspire on our own. The only human being to live a life without lies, without deceit, without two-faced hypocrisy hypocrisy, was, in fact, Jesus Christ, the very Son of God. The standard that God has set is complete honesty, complete transparency, complete vulnerability within a community of people that exhibits humility and grace. Now, that's the ideal. It's certainly not always the reality, is it? And so my proposition is that since self-interest competes with sincerity, man needs the penetrating grace of the gospel. I mean, the problem runs to the core of who we are as human beings. And so in order to find any redemption, we need some kind of divine intervention. We need to see how the gospel of Jesus Christ speaks into this problem and how our text this morning brings that to light. This uh, brief passage here in Luke 12 um, shows us three truths that emerge, that orient us to the reality of our sin and the solution uh, to that problem. So we're going to look at three points, the pressing burden of hypocrisy, the perverted fear of man, and the pervasive love of Christ. The pressing burden of hypocrisy, there's hardly a more burdensome yoke to bear than leading a life rife with hypocrisy and pretenses. It is an exhausting endeavor, and it's not how we were intended to live. Here, verses 1 through 3. In the meantime, when so many thousands of the people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples first, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. Jesus is speaking to a very large crowd here. Several thousands of people were gathered, pressing around him, trampling one another, trying to get at Jesus to hear him, maybe even touch him. But pious acts of reverence, And shallow displays of allegiance do neither fool nor flatter God. We saw in chapter 11 that Jesus has just come from an interaction with the Pharisees in which he vehemently denounced hypocrisy. And he chooses to return to that subject here with these thousands of people pressing onward. The text explicitly tells us that he addresses his disciples first. And so as you read this, if you call yourself a Christian, you can effectively insert yourself into the story. In the place of the disciples, Jesus is addressing you directly. He says, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. As with yeast, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. 
Beware in yourselves what I am indicting in the Pharisees. You see, we are tempted to think that Jesus is not addressing us because we're not Pharisees. And while that is true, we are all Pharisaical. We have a propensity to tidy up the outside while leaving the inside in disarray. Thousands of people were pressing around Jesus, feigning love and loyalty, but Jesus knew their hearts and he addressed it forthrightly. Don't be hypocritical. He says, be sincere. You can't conceal anything. It will all be made known. Jesus explains the short-sightedness of hypocrisy. It's a short-term fix, a postponement of an inevitable reckoning. Jesus is declaring the fullest publicity for the darkest of our secrets. Full disclosure, whatever you have whispered in private will be shouted in public. Eventually, our charades will come to an end. Our insincerity will be made known. The yoke of hypocrisy is a crippling thing. The pressing weight of keeping up pretenses is exhausting, and it will never accomplish its desired end. He lived in the suburbs of Chicago in the 60s and 70s. He was a husband and father of two, a son and daughter. He owned a restaurant and was voted outstanding vice president of the Waterloo JCs in 1967. He was an active volunteer in the Democratic Party, becoming a precinct captain at the party's local office. He was also an avid painter. John Wayne Gacy Jr. was also a serial rapist and murderer who killed 33 young boys between 1972 and 1978. He would often dress up as a clown and lure the boys into his home where he would take them captive, commit unspeakable acts of violence and abuse, and then kill them. He would then dispose of their bodies in the crawl space beneath his house. In all, he packed 27 dead bodies beneath the floorboards of his house. And when he ran out of space, he disposed of his victims into nearby rivers. He was executed on May 10, 1994. In 2005, an American songwriter named Sufjan Stevens wrote an eerily beautiful biographical song about John Wayne Gacy Jr. It's an absolutely haunting work in which he describes in disturbing detail the manner by which Gacy enticed and tortured his victims. And as this extremely unsettling song comes to a close, the almost ghost-like voice of the composer softly sings the following lines. And in my best behavior, I am really just like him. Look beneath the floorboards for the secrets I have hid. A frighteningly honest confession from a man who recognizes the depths of the sin of his own heart. Now, I may not be a serial killer, but there are two fundamental characteristics that I share with John Wayne Gacy Jr. First, my sin, which is deeply offensive to God, deserves nothing less than condemnation in hell. And second, I too bury my ugliness so that no one will find me out. I have my own floorboards beneath which lie unspoken secrets. And so do you. 
Ralph Waldo Emerson once said, Every man alone is sincere. At the entrance of a second person, hypocrisy begins. We are all tempted toward duplicity, some maybe more than others. But the very nature of our sin creates a constant temptation to say one thing and then do another. It's a constant battle. We have a hard time living that which we profess. The Apostle Paul spoke of this when in Romans 7 he said, For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. To carry on pretenses is a full-time commitment. And the pressing burden of hypocrisy can be wearing. There are many reasons why we, want, why we might be tempted to put forth so much effort to maintain a charade. And Jesus doesn't waste any time getting to the heart of the matter. He identifies the root of the problem in verses 4 and 5. It brings us to our second point, the perverted fear of man. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Francois Fenelon was the court preacher for King Louis XIV of France in the 17th century. One Sunday when the king and his attendants arrived at the chapel for the regular service, no one was there except Francois Fenelon, the preacher. And King Louis frustratingly demanded, what does this all mean? And Fenelon replied, I had published that you would not come to church today in order that your majesty might see who serves God in truth and who flatters the king. I wonder how many of us here this morning are here because that's what people expect of us. Ultimately, who is the audience we seek to please in life? Is it God or is it man? Who do we fear? You see, at the time when Jesus was addressing his followers in this way, it was dangerous to speak about the power of Jesus and the hope of the change that he was bringing. There was a chance Herod might catch wind and send his men to put a stop to it. But Jesus tells his followers to not fear those who can merely kill the body. Essentially, he's saying, don't fear those whose powers are so limited. Not only do I have the power over life and death, but I have authority over your eternal destination. And the word Jesus uses for hell here is Gehenna, not the more generic Hades that can be found elsewhere. Gehenna carries with it a notion of punishment. And it's a word whose derivative is taken from the name of a nearby valley close to Jerusalem in which lay a trash heap where there was always a fire burning. And so Jesus is using language that is not in the least bit vague. He's saying, you want something to fear? Fear him who can cast you headlong into the eternal fire of punishment. It's like Jeremy's illustration from a couple of weeks ago in which the great martyr Polycarp was being threatened with execution by fire in order that he might recant his faith. And his response was, You threaten fire, which burns for an hour and then is quenched. But you are ignorant of the fire of the coming judgment and eternal punishment reserved for the wicked. Now, I don't desire for this to devolve into a fire and brimstone type of a message, but I do want to be true to our text this morning. Jesus is very clearly denouncing both hypocrisy and misplaced fear, two things which affect every person in this room to some extent. 
the pressing burden of hypocrisy, the perverted fear of man. Two realities which have as much to do with us today as they did the throng of followers and disciples to which Jesus was speaking over 2,000 years ago. So how will he resolve this dilemma? In what way does the gospel speak into this area of sin in our lives? You might be surprised to see where Jesus goes with it. It brings us to our third point, the pervasive love of God. Verses 6 and 7, Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. Let's not miss the fact that in verse 4 he addresses his hearers as friends because Jesus' primary objective is not to frighten but to reassure. Now, if we look in the Gospel of Matthew, it tells us that two sparrows are sold for one penny. And Luke tells us here that five sparrows went for two pennies, the implication being that one sparrow was thrown in for free. Maybe it was buy four, get one free Friday at the market that day. But the point is that not one of those little sparrows, not even the free one, is forgotten before God. God takes great care of the commonest and cheapest of birds. How much more then will he care for his people? He knows every hair that is on your head. He delights in his children. He knows us intimately. He knows the secrets that we have. He knows what's beneath our floorboards. To use the language of second life, he knows the avatar we are tempted to create in order to keep up certain desired appearances. He knows our hypocrisy and he knows our misplaced fear. And being outside of time, when Jesus Christ went to the cross, he knew for what he was being put to death. He took all of our junk and baggage, all of our hypocrisy, all of our self-protective tendencies, all of our sin, every last bit of it, and he took it onto his shoulders. He bore it all. He did so that you and I could have life and have it to the full. But that requires honesty, honesty with ourselves, honesty with each other, and most importantly, honesty with God. 1 John 1, 9 tells us that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so we have the opportunity this morning to come to the table and to dine with Him. But unlike the Pharisee in chapter 11, whom Jesus rejected for His hypocrisy, we are coming to this table not boasting in ourselves like that man, But the hope and the prayer and the goal is that we boast in the cross and the cross only. Galatians 6.14 tells us, But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. You see, that's the only remedy, not only to our sin, but to hypocrisy especially, dying to ourselves and placing all of who we are in the arms of Jesus Christ, who willingly bore our shame in order that we might have salvation. Let us boast in that and that alone.